I'm Amber Tresca, and this is About IBD. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. Welcome to episode 100. I started my show because I got angry when the results of a mouse study went mainstream. I had no plan and no idea where it was going. That's not how I normally do things, but in this case, it has obviously worked out well. I wasn't sure how to celebrate. It's a milestone episode, but we're in the midst of a public health emergency and I'm not traveling right now. Then inspiration came to me in the form of my friend, Meredith Mangold. Meredith is known on Instagram and Facebook as the bowel battling badass. She lives with a J pouch after a diagnosis of ulcerative colitis that was complicated by a rare condition called toxic megacolon. Meredith has two partners in her health journey that feature regularly in her social media her dogs. She tells me how dogs have enriched her life and serve as companions when she's feeling isolated, as well as how she cares for them even on the days when she's struggling. From Maryland, let's talk to the delightful Meredith Mangold of the Bowel Battling Badass. Meredith, thank you so much for coming on about IBD for my 100th episode. I'm so excited to be here with you, Amber, and congratulations. Thanks so much. This is going to be really special. I can tell already. First off, I want to give the listeners an overview of your diagnosis story and what's going on with your disease right now. I know you have multiple conditions, so maybe we might want to touch on that a little bit to start. For sure. Um, I'll focus on my IBD um, because that's kind of the majority of what I focus on advocacy and awareness wise. Um, But I had a very irregular diagnosis process. I was diagnosed with severe ulcerative colitis totally out of nowhere um, in February of 2011. I had just turned 20 and I was in my sophomore year at college uh, at Georgetown University. I had caught a 24-hour stomach bug a few weeks earlier in February, but it was like super fast. I got over it. It was not fun puking in the communal dorm bathrooms, but it was fine. I got back to my normal life, um, going to classes and studying for midterms, um, so no big deal. But about a week or so later, over the course of about 10 days, I went from being totally fine and healthy to losing so much blood in my stool that I was admitted to the ICU. Um, My GI diagnosed me with toxic megacolon after performing a colonoscopy, and thus began my first uh, major hospitalization, which lasted for about two months. You were in for two months. What did they do for treatments during that time? Did they first have to treat the toxic megacolon? Yeah, basically the first thought was like, oh no, she probably is going to need emergency surgery, but the inflammation is so intense and the gut is so hot that we don't want to cut because that can be, you know, dangerous. So they tried all sorts of different medications. Uh, you know, I was on IV steroids and ASAs and all that great IBD stuff. Uh, we tried Remicade, um, but then I built up antibodies against it after my first infusion. So when they tried it the second time, I went into anaphylactic shock. So that was super fun. Um, But, and so they were kind of running out of ideas. And so the more senior attending kind of had this like 
just like breakthrough moment and was like, wait, maybe should we try cyclosporin, which mm. is usually given to transplant patients mm-hmm. after their transplants so that they don't reject the transplanted organ. So basically it was to try and calm down my immune system. Um, and so that worked enough basically at like the last possible moment things could have hopefully worked out before I would have been wheeled into the OR. Um, so that calmed things down enough um, to be able to get the other meds to work. And so I could avoid emergency surgery. So that was great. But yeah, it was about two months of just like pooping, pooping, <laughs> and lots of new meds, lots of side effects. But I was, I was so thankful when ultimately the cyclosporin helped and I didn't need to get emergency surgery because at that point we were really trying to avoid it. Right. Yeah, for sure. Especially with this was a first flare up of the yeah. condition and all of a sudden you're being told that you might have to have life changing surgery. It's just it's totally bonkers. So other than the bloody diarrhea, did you have any other symptoms with the toxic megacolon? Is there anything that you would say that would be like red flag? That's something that patients should know about that that disease process might be happening. Honestly, for me, it happened so fast. I didn't know it was happening. I literally, I remember running from my dorm room to the communal dorm bathroom and literally like bloody poop, like escaping. And I was like, how is this happening? I was totally fine a couple of days ago. So it happened really fast. I remember going to my pediatrician, like primary care's office, because luckily I lived close by. I grew up in Maryland, went to Georgetown in DC. So my parents could come and pick me up from school. We went to see the primary care, but I was so sick that I couldn't even like produce correct samples at the time. So they sent me to the ER, they did a CT, and that's when they saw the inflammation. So really, I think it was the inflammation that was shown in the CT that pointed us in the direction of toxic megacolon. Um, And so they sent me off to Georgetown so they could better care for me. So so yeah, it happened super fast. I was fine. And then... I, I don't really remember much because I got so sick so quickly. And I think my brain kind of turned things off to help yeah. help me cope through it. I remember being wheeled into Georgetown and then everything kind of goes dark. And I just remember things from a couple of weeks later after I got out of the ICU. Has anybody sort of filled you in in those um, blank spots since then? Yeah, <laughs> I have some really, they're really funny stories, things Crazy things happen when you're either in lots of pain or medicated. Mm-hmm. I have no memory of this, but the uh, the PICU, pediatric ICU attending doctor that I had in the beginning, he um, had this very thick Israeli accent. And I, I guess in my like totally like hazed out mind, I couldn't exactly understand what he was saying, but he asked me a question and I was like, what? And then... I answered, I haven't written my name in a long time because I thought he said, how's your penmanship? And, and no one, everyone looked at me like, what are you talking about? And my mom in the corner, like, I guess, you know, understand. So I think it was like, no, no, no. He asked, how is your pain management? <laughs> so, so, so crazy stuff like that happened. Um, and I had amazing, amazing uh, nurses and techs who all, I am friends with to this day and case managers who I'm still very close friends with. So I was very lucky to have a great team. And I think especially I was the oldest patient on the um, PEDS floor. Um, And that's just because I had a PEDS GI going into this whole experience for like not as uh, critical things. 
so yeah, I was, I was very lucky, but it was a scary, scary experience. My mom stayed with me in the hospital the whole time and my dad would come back and forth. But yeah, basically after I eluded that first emergency surgery and then stabilized for after about two months, I got out, recovered that summer, went back to school, but then had to withdraw again, go back to hospital. So basically for the next year and a half, I was in and out of school, in and out of the hospital because ultimately the meds alone weren't enough to keep my colon healthy. At that point, I was also on Humira and 6MP and I think still prednisone and other things like that. So we were trying to hold up surgery for as long as possible, but in my mind, I, I knew it was it was time. It was more so kind of convincing my parents who were having a hard time letting go of mm-hmm. you know the idea of a healthy daughter who didn't need surgery. Mm-hmm. So I, I did end up getting my total proctocolectomy and J pouch surgeries in September and October of 2012, which was crazy because I think my first surgery, I'm pretty sure, was the same day that Hurricane Sandy hit. So the hospital was just a wreck. Thing. Uh, surgeries were getting pushed. There was no power. We were running on generators. So just to add to the anxiety of a surgery, just everything was a mess, but I made it through. It was tough. I had a lot of post-surgical complications and ileus mainly. It was very uncomfortable, but since then, my G pouch has been pretty good to me. I'm very lucky that I had a very skilled uh, colorectal surgeon. Uh, He was the chair of, of colorectal surgery for the whole um, hospital system here. Um, So right now I basically deal with chronic pouchitis. And so this is now what, like 10 years removed. Um, I deal with chronic pouchitis and other extra intestinal manifestations. Um, And eating is still really hard for me, but I'm alive and stable. I'm not in the hospital. So these are all good things. Um, and I think also that some of the other conditions that I've been uh, diagnosed with since then probably also contribute to my GI upset. But yeah, the main issues I'm still dealing with are severe chronic abdominal pain. That's been really hard to figure out exact, the exact source of and to treat, along with managing those other chronic conditions like I have postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome um, and things like that. And then just mentally dealing with being a chronically ill person these past 10 years, it, it takes a lot. But yeah, so overall, it's been, it was like a crazy, really acute journey in the beginning. And now it's just kind of been about like the marathon that is Spoonie life and mm-hmm. and kind of and just getting through that and keep, keeping up hope and resilience and the urge to continue to like advocate for myself. Right. Something that I think about a lot, and I'd love to get your take on this is how when you've been sick like this and then you have something like a J-pouch surgery, which is better but not perfect, and we live with certain things that I think a healthy person who on Monday had a functional colon and then on Tuesday had a J-pouch would be like, this is wild, what's going on with this? But we're like, wow, our lives are so much better. (laughs) Yet there is a concern that perhaps people with ulcerative colitis or maybe Crohn's disease too, I I don't know, I think I'm more familiar with ulcerative colitis, and their physicians might hang on to their colon for longer than they should, mm-hmm. keeping, you know, trying different things and just trying to avoid that surgery. And it sounds like y- you were ready to go. Your family members weren't ready. I don't know where your doctors fell on the spectrum of this, but what are your thoughts about trying to hold on to your colon 
versus making the decision to have the surgery before it becomes a critical or an emergency situation? My perspective has probably changed from who I was at that point and who I am now with what I've learned from not only my own experience, but the experience of other IBD patients. I feel like the majority of them try to hold on to their colon in the hopes that, okay, a med will work. But the thing you have to understand is that a lot of these meds have a lot of side effects and I'm dealing with them now. You know, I just found out I have osteopenia and osteoporosis from long-term steroid use. That's not to say, you know, you shouldn't use meds. Of course, you should medicate your IBD if that's helping you and keeping your disease under control. But um, I would say that the idea of surgery is scarier than actually just like committing, doing it. And then you will have to learn kind of a new way of life without your colon. You know, after I got my J pouch, I was basically on the on the toilet all, all day long. But that's just because I'm adjusting to new plumbing. Like my body is doing something that it never had to do before. And the fact that it can actually adapt to this change is pretty amazing. So I would say I also though, in my experience, I felt like I was being told, and I think a lot of people hear this, that the surgery would be curative for me. Mm -hmm. And so when I still had all this abdominal pain and difficulty eating, I felt like a failure. And I think even my parents were like, well, wh why is this happening? So I went back mm -hmm. to my colorectal surgeon, did all the tests. I had, you know, second, third, and fourth opinion consults with other GIs. And, you know, we're still figuring it out. But there are extra intestinal manifestations of IBD. Removing the organ isn't a total cure, but you know it can help. But every everyone's situation is different. I would say advocate for yourself as a patient by doing the research, talking to other patients. If you don't feel like you can really trust and be connected to your GI or your surgeon, look for someone else. You never have to feel obligated to go along with that person's like care plan um, if you feel something's not right. But yeah, I would say for the most part, there is a tendency to try and like, there's the idea of, oh my gosh, like an ileostomy or a colostomy is the worst thing ever. Um, and I had my temporary ileostomy for um, six weeks between my surgeries before they did the takedown and reconnected me. And I still actually sometimes wonder like, huh, should I have stuck with a permanent ileostomy? And, you know, maybe that's something I'll consider down the line, but at least for now, things are good, but everyone has to make their own decision and given, you know, the circumstances and also what kind of care they have access to. Meredith, you have some online platforms that you use to tell your story and to help other people who are living with IBD and J pouches and the other conditions that you're dealing with now. What made you start this and what are you looking to achieve through your advocacy? It was really my husband to Ryan who encouraged me to like really focus on advocacy in full time. Um, I went to undergrad for Arabic language and literature, so I had a totally different future plan for myself. Um, but when I graduated from undergrad, I realized that given the whole medical experience I'd just gone through, I really wanted to support other patients like me in their health journeys and to try and fix problems that I'd experienced um, within the healthcare system. 
So once I graduated, I worked in a primary care practice and at a hospital before I decided to focus on patient advocacy exclusively for about the past four years since I've been working at home. I, I really hope that by sharing my IBD and chronic illness journey with other patients that they realize that even on their worst days when they're stuck on the toilet or they can't get out of bed, that they are so strong and accomplished for living this life that we didn't choose and for taking the energy to care for themselves and for finding ways to thrive and to still find joy and fulfillment in their life. Because it is, it's very hard, especially if you're not diagnosed as a young child, like you have expectations for your life. And now my life is, is totally different. So I think I especially just like to let other patients know that it's okay to not be okay, but also you can, you can find joy and fulfillment in ways that maybe you hadn't expected before. I also really try to be transparent about my experiences as a, as a chronic pain patient um, as well, because I think that the whole way we currently treat chronic pain for IBD is, is bonkers. And we need patients and clinicians to be learning from each other and looking for solutions to improve patient care and to make it more multidisciplinary. I'm just now, after 10 years of being chronically ill, seeing the right pain management multidisciplinary teams that I need to. And it's taken a lot, a lot of work and blood, sweat, and tears. So uh, I just try and be open with people about that, especially there's a lot of stigma about pain medication use and what that means. You know, I've been accused of being a, a drug addict behind my back by someone who I thought was a friend. Mm. Another big part of my pre-surgical story is I was on so many opiates that I had to go through a medical detox because my surgeon was going to have to put me into a coma after my surgery to deal with the post-operative pain. So pain management and the obstacles that patients face is a really big focus of my patient advocacy. I just think it's important for us to talk about that more. Totally agree with you completely. The way that we treat, or I should say, the way that pain and IBD is sort of not treated. Yeah. They tell you narcotics are bad, but then it's like, okay, but what else do we have? Like, I don't even understand. Right. So it's really, and I've been watching your journey this whole time, and you've you've educated me so much about that. So I really appreciate everything that you're doing in that. And also, I think that you have found another way to relieve pain, which doesn't have anything to do with physicians or pain management or anything. And that's with your pets. Yes. And your pets are like a huge part of your journey, a huge part of your advocacy. Tell me about your dogs. And I, I don't know if you have any other pets, actually. I just know about your dogs. So <laughs> I just have my two puppers. I, we have Josie, who is our five-year-old and change uh, black lab and pity mix. And then we have her little sister, Maisie, who is a little pandemic pup. Um, she is a Basenji and probably pity mix. They're both rescues though, so we can't know for sure. But we uh, adopted them both from To Love a Canine Rescue in Pennsylvania, so TLC Rescue. They have been uh, amazing. We love, we love both of our pups so much. And especially now we're at the point, you know, I'm 30. We, you know, would probably like to have kids. My husband definitely wants to have kids, but I'm in a point where, you know, I can barely take care of myself some days. And so... Mm -hmm. I love our dogs and they're fantastic parts of our family, but also, you know, can I take care of these dogs? If I can't take care of dogs, then why are we even thinking about children type thing? 
so, but they're, they're such a big part of also my like mental health therapy. I'm not doing talk therapy right now. I feel like I do it with my dogs and that's sometimes (laughs) sufficient. Um, but yeah, they're a huge part of helping me get through each and every day with, you know, the uncertainty that chronic illness throws at us. I think that's definitely a big point that some people may think about before they adopt a pet. I mean, hopefully people think about caring for their pet before they adopt one, because, you know, once you have them, you do have to take care of them. Mm -hmm. So do you think that there are things that they should consider before adopting a pet? And then specifically about caring for your pets. What are some things that chronically ill people should think about in terms of the long-term aspects of having pets and especially dogs, since they do sometimes need walking. And then there's that whole poop situation. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And that's a very real concern. I, Ryan wanted to get Josie a little sister for the longest time. And I kept kind of pushing it off because I'm like the rational, hyper-rational one who's like, well, what if we can't, you know, what if they don't get along or what if it's too much to take care of them, blah, blah, blah. You know, he Ryan travels a lot for work. But then finally, I was just like, listen to my heart. And I was like, oh, I need another little cute little baby who can snuggle with me. So, <laughs> so we went for it. But it is a real concern. I feel especially anxious about worrying about whether I can take care of them when my husband's away for business trips. Um, So it's a real concern. Um, I would say that there are just some good, good types of preparation that you can, you can do. So, you know, once you have your, your pet, your pup, ask for help and don't feel bad about receiving it. My husband does most of the physically intensive tasks, like walking them when he's in town, um, because the, our, our pit bull's pretty strong. So she, yeah. she pulls and gets excited. And then my mother-in-law helps me mind them kind of during the day while Ryan's at work, especially, and that's especially helpful if like pain somnia kept, kept me up at night because mm-hmm. usually I want to get some good makeup sleep in like the late morning, but that's right when they're like running around being little nutheads. So it's helpful to just have someone else that you can call on to be like, hey, I feel like poop today. Can you just help me make sure everything's okay with them? I'd say also to find a friend close by or someone that you can hire that you can trust to watch your pets if you unexpectedly have to go into the hospital because you don't want to be worrying about that while you're in, in the hospital. Nobody has time to worry about other things while you're in the hospital. In terms of like logistical things, like simple everyday things, we get our dog food delivered and that's much easier than having to schlep a huge big bag of dog food from you know, the grocery store, the pet store back home. So even just those little things can make a huge difference. Um, We also have a little doggy door um, so they can go outside on their own to go potty in our backyard. Um, And that's been super helpful because for me right now, I'm still spending about 90% of my day in bed. And like, it's hard for me to be upright and especially not kind of like at the exact whim of my pup. She's like, okay, I need to go now. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry. I'm in like 10 out of 10 pain and I can't stand up right now. So we've trained them to be able to just like pop out there, go potty and come back in. So if that's possible, I would recommend that. But obviously I know that's not possible for everyone. And then most of all, just don't punish yourself for thinking you're not being a good enough pet parent. If you're unable to take them on walks or things like that, as often as you'd like to, just just love them and give them the best life you can. That's that's all they want. 
you know, they do so much for us. And there's so many other ways that they help me on a daily basis that I could get into. But, you know, just do the best you can. They love you. Don't put any more pressure on yourself. Mm -hmm. I think that's all really, really good advice and some things that I never would have thought of. When you were adopting your pets because they were both rescues, what types of personality traits did you look for? And do they have particular personality traits that are especially suited to you or to your life with chronic illness or, you know, anything else that that you found that you were sort of a perfect match for your dogs? Yes, I grew up with a lab, so I... um... I knew that I wanted to get like a lab mix of some kind first and we met Josie and she was just so like social and wanting to get to know us. So she was an easy pick right off the bat in 2015. And then when we went to go visit Maisie, we were trying to pick between her and her sisters. We met both of them in the little like play area. And uh, we met her sister first and her sister was very, very skittish and um, like ran away from us and was hiding and stuff like that. And, uh, and so we thought, okay, just have the feeling that that's probably not a good, a good connection. I really wanted a smaller dog who could like snuggle up and be my tummy heating pad pillow. So uh, as soon as Maisie came in, she ran right up to us and was like snuggling. Uh, she also ran around eating all the dog hair that was on the floor. So <laughs> that wasn't <laughs> ideal. Um, so we pretty much were, uh, she, we could tell that she was engaged and wanting to be, you know, like uh, a central part of our family, but she was also a really good snuggler. Uh, it was funny though, on the way home, when we brought, put them both in the car, Josie finally realized like, oh wait, she's coming home with us. I don't know how I feel about this. Like mom, dad, you didn't tell me I was getting a sister today. What? Uh, so it took a while for them to, uh, get along with each other. Um, just Josie was kind of standoffish and it was actually heartbreaking. My husband was so, so sad for like a solid week because he was thinking like, oh God, what did we do? Like, Mm. did we ruin our relationship with Josie? And I had those fears too, but I just, I I knew that it would work out eventually and that it was just, you know, uh, growing pains. Mm -hmm. But yes, I would say Josie is very smart and can understand and intuit situations very easily like she knows when I'm not feeling well she knows when she just needs to calm down and Maisie's just a little snuggle muffin who just wants to be held and snuggled so those are both great things um, in my mind as a chronic illness person chronic illness life is so lonely and Mm -hmm. isolating and so just so nice to have a little fuzzy friend who's there with you great moral support in the bathroom when you're in the bathroom for long periods of time. Um, you know, someone who won't judge you. Uh, Josie likes to headbutt the door open when I'm in the bathroom and just be like, hello. Okay. I'm glad you're happy and everything's okay in here. You've been in here for a while. Just want to make sure. Um, and they bring me so much physical comfort, especially when it might be hard to accept the touch of like another human because of like medical PTSD and stuff like that. They'll just Mm -hmm. snuggle right up to me. And their favorite thing to do is to lick away my tears because they're all salty. <laughs> so they'll immediately <laughs> just start crying. They'll be like, I sense tears, must lick away. Um, so they're big tear lick awayers. Um, and then I also taught Josie how to like some mobility task things. Like I, she can go get my pills for me um, and bring them to me. So I wish that I had more time and more 
mental bandwidth to invest in those kind of training things more with my dogs. Cause I feel like that, especially Josie could, she's a very quick learner, really the snuggles, the snuggles are the main thing and making me laugh because uh, I feel like joy and laughter and humor is kind of one of the things that can go away easiest when you're depressed and, and anxious and sometimes they'll just do the stupidest funny things and it'll just make me burst out laughing so they're definitely my number one source of of humor and comedy and lightheartedness so you didn't really train them to do any of the things that are helpful to you as a chronic illness patient they just intuitively understood i'm thinking of my cat that i had when I was having my J pouch surgeries, I didn't train her to not jump up on my stomach yeah. during my recovery period, but she knew not to do that. You know, mm-hmm. is that the kind of thing that you found that they just understand it sort of instinctively? Yes, it's they just sense how you're feeling. You don't have to explain yourself to them like we feel like we have to with other humans. They can intuit. Like I just got actually um, some skin biopsies done. So I have three chunks out of my leg. And as soon as I walked in the door a couple of days ago after getting it done, they both like came to a halt and just started sniffing my leg. And we're like, okay, you got some boo-boos. We'll be calm. We won't jump on you and get all excited. Uh, they They totally just understand things without us having to explain them. And sometimes when I'm in like a really dark place, that makes me cry because I'm just so happy that they're there for me. And I'm like, oh my God, you don't have to be this wonderful. Like, thank you so much. But yeah, they don't judge you. They don't have unfair expectations of us. They just want to make us happy. They have no agenda or ulterior motives. Or, you know, if you say like, sorry, can't take you for a walk right now, they're not going to be like, ugh. You can't take me for a walk right now. I'm gonna remember this tomorrow. <laughs> you know, they they, <laughs> they just want to love us. Maybe their only agenda is trying to get us to feed them more treats. But like, they're yeah, they don't require any explanation, and they don't judge us. Meredith, if your dogs could understand English for a couple of minutes, what would you want them to understand, or what would you say to them? This is a legitimate dog mom question or just like pet parent <laughs> question that I think we have all considered, you know, those days where you, you think you can understand what they're saying with their eyes, but you really wish like, I just want to get my point across. If they could only understand me and not like speak back, I'd probably mm. say like, I love you so much. I love you so much. And like, thank you for all, <laughs> thank you for all you do to bring joy and, and laughter into my life when I feel like crap. But also things like you do not need to bark at the mailman or the delivery people outside <laughs> every day at 10 a.m. when they arrive. Uh, I appreciate you protecting your house, but it's cool. I'm fine. I get it. I know they're out there. But <laughs> if they could respond to and I could have like an actual conversation with them. I, mm-hmm. First of all, I feel like I would kind of want to get like, I don't think I could do this and only a minute, I, but I want to get kind of an understanding of how they perceive themselves and their identities. Cause I kind of have uh-huh. an idea of how I imagine each of their little identities in their minds being, but I would also just like practically try and lay out some ground rules and then come to common, like understanding to better clarify, like communication, like, okay, when you want your water, you come sit here. When you want your food, you come sit here. When you have to pee, you go out there. You don't just whine and walk around the house aimlessly. Josie loves to do that. I'm like, yes, you want something. Be clear. 
Um, but, but yes, so if they could just understand, I would convey my love, but if they could respond, I would like sort of to establish like some communication things so that my spoonie life could be even easier. Uh, what about you and your cats? Do you have any ideas? That was such a comprehensive answer. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> I, was ta- I was talking to my friend who's a vet about this the other day because we were having a very deep conversation about dogs. And she, she said it's the same thing. Like, I love you so much. I love you so much. And okay, ground rules. <laughs> I-, I feel like I wouldn't have to use my words to convey love. I mean, hopefully not. Hopefully your yeah. pets understand that you love them, even though I call one of my pets a name all of the time that I won't say <laughs> out on my show. <laughs> we have so many names for them, don't worry. <laughs> it's out of but, love. Uh, yeah, but I, but I do think that the ground rules thing probably would take precedence for me, I have to say. You know, um, I don't mind that you're always in the bathroom, I guess, but maybe find somewhere else to lay once in a while. Yeah. I don't know, maybe. And also, could you please just poop in the right spot? Like these are just the, you know, would make our lives go so much better. So I agree 100%. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe, maybe we'll see that day. But I don't know. Technology will help us to like interface and communicate with our pets somehow. That'd be pretty cool. But I feel like they can communicate pretty well enough without without words. I think we do pretty well most of the time. Yeah. Meredith, thank you so much for coming on about IBD, for telling me about how your dogs are enriching your life, and also for giving tips for people who live with chronic illness, because I think it might be something that weighs on a lot of people's minds, but I don't know that they actually bring it forward and discuss it in that they're not sure how they can take care of a pet. Mm-hmm. while they're living with a chronic illness. But I think it's possible and you know you've you've helped me to understand even better how it's a really important part of our lives and it's something that can bring us so much joy pet ownership and that we shouldn't turn ourselves off to that because we feel as though we might not be the best dog mom or the best cat mom that ever could be. You right. know, we're just all doing the best that we can and the and the benefits are, you know, absolutely worth the trade-offs. So thank you so much. Thank you. This was a really fun conversation and uh, I hope more chronic illness people out there feel empowered to maybe adopt that pet. So thanks for having me, Amber. Hey super listener. Thanks to Meredith Mangold of The Bowel Battling Badass for sharing her disease journey and her tips on being a pet owner while living with a chronic illness. You can follow her on Instagram and Facebook as The Bowel Battling Badass. I will put all her social media information in the show notes and on my episode 100 page on aboutibd.com. Thanks also to Maisie and Josie for taking good care of my friend. You can follow me across all social media as About IBD. If you and your pet want to be featured on this podcast, leave me a voice message at speakpipe.com slash about IBD. Thanks for listening. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. About IBD is a production of Malintel Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresk. Mix and sound design is by Matt Cooney. Theme music is from Cooney Studio. Coming up on the next About IBD. We haven't established dietary guidelines for patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And I want to give people hope for 
improvements.